Hello, I'm Laron Brooks, Associate Curator for Modern and Contemporary Collections at the Getty Research Institute. Welcome to Art and Ideas. I'm your host for a three-episode series about poetry and visual art. I think you can see that from my work that I try to put everything I know in there and everything I don't know. I'm looking for stuff I don't know in that pursuit of like a daily practice. In this episode, I speak with poet and artist Terrence Hayes. When Terrence Hayes was growing up, everyone thought he was going to be a painter. But after college, he turned to poetry. For Terrence, visual art and writing are closely linked. Both are a way of storytelling. He thinks deeply about creating art with staying power, art that makes people return to it again and again, and how to radically record one's own life. Terrence is a professor of creative writing at New York University and is a recipient of numerous awards and honors, including the MacArthur Fellowship, the Whiting Writers Award, and a Guggenheim Fellowship. In this episode, I speak with Terrence about the power of poetry, visual art, and teaching. Hey, Terrence, how's it going? Good. How you been? I'm great. I'm great. You know, I was thinking about something that you said, and I want to start from this particular quote. Mm-hmm. You said the advantage of poetry is that you can come in and out of shadow, in and out of metaphor. What did you mean by that? Will it be like the advantage of poetry versus other genres? You know, we can talk about the advantage of poetry versus visual art versus mm-hmm. music. But it sounds like in that context, what I'm talking about is probably language. And so yeah. the advantage of poetry versus long prose, maybe even a newspaper, is that it is a kind of quick spell. Mm-hmm. You know, if you find the right poem, you can certainly get caught into a spell very quickly. I think that about like uh, stopping by the woods on a snowy evening. Yeah. If you say that poem once or twice, you're in it, you know. <laughs> uh-huh. The concision of poetry is not really concision because the words have a longer, you have to digest them. Every word is chosen, right? And, and a word next to a word could be a book in and of itself, just in terms of the suggestion. And so I guess even prose, they may be book long, right? Maybe hundreds of pages, but a poem, a haiku can outstretch that in terms of meaning. Because concision isn't really concision. You'll see at the end of this conversation how I'm always just saying the same thing. So things connect uh-huh. up really easily. But I will say to you, I mostly try to visualize that for people. So I say, you know, figurative language. That means it has shape. If poetry is essentially figurative language beyond diction, diction is figurative language. That just means language with shape. So however you want to shape it in whatever literary tradition, the idea is it's going to throw some kind of shadow. It's going to have enough body when you've played with it to throw a shadow. Not true for the newspaper and maybe not true for a lot of prose, uh, not true for like menu items. So the sense that there's something else happening, you can think of it as subtextual or even, you know, the essential notion of negative capability as a way of reading. So poetry will always suggest there's something between the lines that's happening so that you can find a sentence like that inside of Toni Morrison, where you know that sentence is casting more than one shadow. It's meaning something more than what it's saying. That's poetry to me, you know, kind of the frequency of that inside a language or inside of a linguistic text is poetry. 
And it's, it's steeped in, in a certain kind of knowing. You know, you bring up Toni Morrison. I was rereading Sula. And there's such a knowing in a lot of that language, right? And so there are the things that are said, but then there are things that are unsaid that connect to your own knowing, that, that make you really think about the language. But you can't take simple language simply. And to think about poetry and the editing of poetry or even the relationship between poetic prose and what is considered to be concisely a poem, there are bridges there. And I know that you work along the bridges or you work within these intersections. What came first, your your love of visual art or your love for the word? Well, I could say pretty quickly it was a visual. Even in the third grade, but maybe before that, that's what people sort of thought I, my gift was. And even now, if you talk to certain people from my even college days, they would say, oh, we thought he was probably going to be a painter. So in that regard, I always saw my talent as a painter, as a kind of public phenomena. So I was drawing, journaling even, and writing poems privately too, but that never seemed like a public phenomena. It just seemed like, you know, prayer. Somebody could hear it, but that's not why you're doing it. And then, you know, I wound up on a fellowship for poetry at the University of Pittsburgh, studying with Toy Derricotte, who you know went on to found the Cave Canem and has really been a mentor through most of my life. And I, I sort of was like, well, I've never taken a poetry class. I hadn't taken any poetry classes before I went to graduate school. And so part of the shock in that space was how quickly people were writing, because I had worked on a paragraph, really, a prose poem, but it was really a paragraph for four years. And I thought that was fun to work on. So what I'm going to say to you is like, even now, I'm often just thinking about like drawing is a kind of writing. So when you say like, which came first? I'm like, well, that's like for the caveman too. drawing always comes first as the first writing. So if I was drawing in third grade, whatever I was drawing, I was writing. Likewise, I even think about that in terms of reading and saying like, well, is all looking, reading is all kinds of seeing a kind of reading. And I think probably, probably so. And so a lot of my work, you know, is around that kind of nexus of what it is to write and what it is to read. The teacher has a bridge between those two things. I think I know at this point that that's what I'm mostly interested in. Yeah, you know, you bring up the, the example of the caveman and cave drawings. And, you know, when I think about that, I think about people leaving a record of existence. As someone who deals with archives, I walk into these spaces and there are these boxes that are records of existence. So like in Kavi Kanam, I remember just the power of the eye, the personal, the witnessing. And so I'm thinking that the intersection between your life as a visual artist and your life as a poet, I mean, both speak to your, your desire to leave a record of the sort of multiplicity of your existence. It seems to be a lot to carry in terms of getting what you know into the hands of people to actually communicate that feeling? Yeah, I mean, I think that's probably true and probably something I try not to think too much about. Any of the sort of outside questions or the the impulses of it, if I am just trying to keep a record for the sake of record keeping. Again, the quickest way to talk about that would be how I would talk to it with my students. So to be teaching in Florida, and I think it was like West Palm Beach or something, and to have a class of like old white retired folks who could take that class at that time of year and have a couple of scholarship students who are people of color, people of interest, and to have my white students say, you know, we don't have anything to write about. 
And then I say to them what I would say to you about the record keeping is like the record is the writing, man. I mean, nobody asked you about subject. I'm saying if you live in a white house with white shoes and a white dog and a white sky and you're keeping a record, that's interesting. It's sort of what do you notice in that particular existence that is of importance? Likewise, in drawing, I say, you know, to my kids and to my students, anytime I've had drawing classes, you know, it's right because you made it like that line that you made is the correct line. And I try to have the poems imagine my way into those things that I believe so that hopefully is always a relationship between these sorts of philosophies. But yeah, I say too, I'm just keeping a record. I try not to decide if it's an art piece or a writing. I'm just always trying to keep track of this one life that we have, you know, every moment feels valuable. So again, even beyond genre, the notion that I'm trying to get something of what every day feels like is, is right. It's why I'm not like really great in food because I sort of feel like as a culinary art, the work that goes into food, it goes away too quickly for me to find that that's worth investing. And food is fleeting. A lot of it is in the preparation. A lot of it is exactly. in the sort of the mixing of the flavors. But then on the back end, it's gone. That's right. How about this, too? I think that there's something so specific to taste that it it works out when I'm talking about how one makes poems. But how one reads poems is like how you eat. Like you just can't really control how a person thinks of something that's spicy or not. So that since I cannot determine the quality of your taste, it actually keeps me from being like hyper political or hyper oriented towards even a notion of like poem as a motion for change. Like I think it kind of can, but it has to be the people that have your taste. I mean, I don't think you can convince people of what their taste should be, you know, what music they should like, what food they should like. You can make a thing for five years and then serve it to them and they'd be like, this tastes terrible. Work on a poem for five years, I'd be like, hey, I worked on it for five years. I don't care what you think, you know. Mm-hmm, <laughs> so mm-hmm. there's something that lingers versus the five-year meal that gets eaten and then discussed. So one of the things that I think about when it comes to your work is you experiment a lot with narrative structure. You know, sometimes the, what looks like the end is the beginning. There are moments in which you dig into specific narratives of family. You talk about the everyday. So when you mentioned your students in Florida, it sounded to me like they didn't consider that their lives, even the minutia of their lives, was important to the degree that it would actually be something that people could read about and learn about on the page. That's true, but they're responding in an environment that says Black Lives Matter. And so I know that's true, and you want them to know it's true, but also to be able to be expressive. So it's not like a random comment that they say to me, man, we just white people, what are we going to write about? You know, we ain't queer, we ain't foreign or whatever, we ain't dark. I mean, that's really what they were saying to me. Mm-hmm. And I said to them, it sort of doesn't matter. This is funny to think about this next to what you just said. I'm not so interested in like subject necessarily. I'm interested in like expressivity and I'm certainly interested in stories, but what's the difference between having a story and having a subject? I sort of feel mm-hmm. like that story can be so personal and so idiosyncratic and and intimate so that like one's notion of beginning and ending is still like in the context of someone else's idea of beginnings and endings. You follow what I'm saying to you? Mm -hmm. With myself and with others, I'm trying to get them to that something beyond like the right and wrong questions or the good and bad questions to something like, you know, it's right because you said it, but just, you know, did you say what you mean? You know, that's what you're asking yourself all the time. But if you said what you mean, it's right because you said it. Mm Mm-hmm. Terrence, would you mind uh, uh, reading a poem? Sure. Um, So, you know, what I do think about on that spectrum between like the poem as a phenomena and the, the poem as a mode of expression, the poem as an exercise 
versus the poem as a record even. I'm often playing with those two things because, yeah, I'm trying to write every day as an exercise. And then there are these moments where you are trying to make it more than like a ritual or more than a habit. And where those things overlap is where my poems show up. So in this one, I just had this thing in my head about adverbs. I must have carried this sentence around for half a year thinking about things got terribly ugly incredibly quickly. That was the line that was in my head. So I say to you, it was the exercise of like playing with adverbs, which I've been told not to. And then really feeling a certain way about, you know, Trump. I wrote it before COVID, but same the feeling about COVID and then reading the poem to you now and thinking like, do I still feel the same way or do I feel like now we're turning a corner? So this poem is called American Sonnet for the New Year. Things got terribly ugly, incredibly quickly. Things got ugly embarrassingly quickly, actually. Things got ugly unbelievably quickly, honestly. Things got ugly seemingly infrequently initially. Things got ugly ironically, usually awfully carefully. Things got ugly unsuccessfully, occasionally. Things got ugly mostly painstakingly quietly, seemingly. Things got ugly beautifully infrequently. Things got ugly sadly, especially frequently. Fortunately, things got ugly increasingly, obviously. Things got ugly suddenly, embarrassingly forcefully. Things got really ugly regularly, truly quickly. Things got really incredibly ugly. Things will get less ugly, inevitably, hopefully. Thank you. Yeah. That adverb and playing with that is a muscular experience there. I mean, that's lifting weight to actually think about where that sentence or where those stanzas will end up because those are meanders, right? That, that you actually push forward and push forward. Can you talk about the work of being a poet? As I said earlier, I think I'm always just saying the same things. So the notion of practice versus the game, even if we are lucky enough to get the places where people want us to perform the work, uh, to publish the work, that is so less common, much less common for us. They have that good fortune and obviously for the people who don't. So what's left mostly is Emily Dickinson writing a bunch of poems with dashes. Don't even put the titles on them, shove them in drawers, throw them up under things because she's like the writing is the practice. The writing is the practice. That's it. I mean, what you're writing, why you're writing it, not so important because we're still going back to this notion of the document and the record and the witness So for me, that's enough. I try not to worry too much about like getting finished. I know it'll be finished. I'll also send you back to that first comment, which is one of my great joys from college was that I was working on a paragraph for four years. And so I'm often trying to make sure that I have something that I'm working on. So it's almost like, you know, I don't want to finish it. Sometimes it gets shapely enough to show up for people. And I try not to put too much pressure on myself about like the end results of any of those modes of expression. You know, I'm writing something on the painter Ed Clark right now, and the idea of what is modern painting, the idea that the paint is the paint, that the paint has its own life. So there's your intention, or there are your intentions when you apply the paint to canvas, but there's a life outside of your intention that the object has. You just make me think about, you know, that as an aspect of what modernity or what I consider modern painting is, 
Well, yeah, it is that brushstroke, you know, the brushstroke versus the thing that has been made from that brushstroke. I mean, this is theoretically the appeal of somebody like Jackson Pollock. But I, I think it's true, too, for, you know, Rothko with his relationship to color, which is to say it's right because you made it. You know, the idea that comes back to sort of even in the, why diversity would be important, which is to say nobody's saying that like white dudes weren't making the right marks. I mean, certainly for even Wallace Stevens, like I love the freedom that he has as a white man with that kind of wealth at that point in America. He had to be one of the most free people ever. I'm interested in that, but I'm interested in that for everybody. So I say to you, everybody's brushstroke has some interest to it. What you have is like the mechanization of that. And a lot of other people imitating brushstrokes, but you know, the baby's brushstroke, the baby song, the native brushstroke, the native sound is all trustworthy. You make me think about the black arts movement and how art needed to be useful. Like going back to Du Bois, right? Artist propaganda. You have someone like Ed Clark who dealt with abstraction, but then at the same time, laterally, you had the Black Arts Movement, and they were talking about forthright Black representation in terms of the figure, what is useful. And so thinking about the ways in which, especially Black poets are working, there is always this history of what is this useful for? Right. And who is this useful to? Is it indulgent or can I use this in a very sort of aspirational way to find some kind of affirmation? And so in terms of making poems, do you consider or is it even a consideration that your poems need to have some kind of use, if I can say use in terms of political affirmational tool? I just think that the people who believe in education. Let's just start there. I could say art and expressivity, but the people who believe in education, the people who believe in knowledge and the people who believe in wisdom do not think that. Obviously, it's a political thought, like art for art's sake versus art for the people. The art for the people side, man, is the side that's rhetoric. That's the side that political. That's the side that's organized. Arts for the people it has to be. If it's art for the people, because we know that art is not for the people. Art is what you're doing in your crayon by yourself. And maybe your mom and daddy like it. Maybe they don't. You follow what I'm saying? So art for art's sake is again, like the birds singing in the trees. So that is not to say that art for the people is not a thing. I just say to you, it to me, it's secondary. You have to have that inherent expressivity that creates emotional intelligence that leads us to wisdom. What is the function of it? The people feel good. They feel entertained. You know, they feel good when they read poems. They cry sometimes when they read poems. And I say, enough, that's enough. At this moment, in this historical moment with technology and attention spans, I say to my students, just to hold them for a little while. If people are in the practice of reading everything once and they read your poem twice, that's an achievement. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. You want them to read it more than that, but it's contextual. You know what I mean? So I'm not demanding that people study and explicate and analyze poems in the way that we have historically, especially if it's not something that they, you know, interested in. But I do say to the maker of those poems, like, you just want them to engage it. You ain't trying to change nobody's mind. You just want them to engage it. And then maybe they'll change their mind or have something happen to them. You know, I, I used to say to my students that education comes from conflict often. That the person you were when you entered the, the gates of the university is not the person that you are in this classroom. Because education is a matter of exposure. What you take in is what you take in. That's kind of what you were saying. Right? You read the poem twice, you're taking something in. You read it once, it's just exposure, kind of. Mm -hmm. And so thinking about your uh, poetry and visual art as a way to 
actually process life if they choose that door, visual art or, or a poem. So as an educator, as a teacher, what is the importance of exposing your students to art that they may not consider to be useful? Oh, yeah. It's such a big answer around that one, because I know I'm talking so much about teaching. You know, they're reciprocal in terms of what I do as a writer and what I do as a teacher around those questions. So let me say this thing about what I think I value in the reading and writing of poems is, again, a kind of development of emotional intelligence. I'm still talking about this idea of developing one's emotional intelligence as my job. And so understanding tools and poems and understanding the history of poems is sort of just evidence like to be like, look, I can read you something that'll blow your mind, first of all. And I can show you how like that came from another thing that somebody had read. And then maybe you can try it and see what your response to that is, whether you like it or not. Like that is the teacherly thing, because that's often what I am doing. I always talk to people about Prince, like all the different ways that Prince was in the world when he was in the world. You could just like look at the hairstyles, first of all. Like, what other artists changed the hairstyle as much as Prince? But I even go to the voice. I think like that objective of variety inside of oneself is the ambition, not stylistic consistency, which is something that comes from the marketplace, but something that's more, maybe a little unstable, a little particular and hard to evaluate. It helps you listen to yourself better. It helps you read yourself and others better. So that's why you want to be doing this. Art, the saying art is an education in the emotions, right? And I really understand what you're saying is art allows access to emotions you didn't realize were valuable sometimes. Right. So a poem that actually values the complexity of the human experience and hones in uh, on the value of a particular emotion, emotions versus feelings. Right. Right. Feeling versus thinking, you know, even is the real thing. Feeling versus thinking. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. Feelings ain't facts. Right. Right. But still, you know, important, you know. But still important. Exactly. Yeah. So you said, uh, here's a quote right from you. You said, if you can get at the language correctly, you can say anything you want. What did you mean by that? But here's the thing. If you are going to line it up with the conversation, that is a question about like what your frequency is. If you can get it to be your language whoever you are, random, you know, Caucasian person with a lot of money living in Florida. Like there are a lot of frequencies here and you can find it if you can like, again, listen to yourself in a certain regard or value certain kinds of rhythms and images and perspectives in one's own language, having mm -hmm. heard and received it. If you can kind of hear that thing, that's it. That is the work. That is what you're doing. I had a student today who's born in Shanghai. Maybe he's going to have to go back after, uh, graduation. And I just kept saying, but why are you writing only in English? It's great stuff. But I know you got more languages than that. Like I'm always like all the tools you got in the battlefield, you got to use them just because I ain't got no knife to me and you don't have to have a knife. So that is to say like bilingualism, multilingualism, regardless of what I know as one reader, you should always be using all your languages. They all bear on each other. So I'm not saying just bring a poem in and like Mandarin and expect all of us in the class to get it. But I am saying no evidence though, in any of the things that that would be a tool slash weapon. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think you can see that from my work that I try to put everything I know in there and everything I don't know. I mean, I'm looking for stuff I don't know in that pursuit of like a daily practice. You know, sometimes everything that we are isn't always welcome in every space. And it sounds to me like you're making an invitation or, uh, or you're sending an invitation to say you're welcome here. 
You know, every part of you, the, the languages, every part of you is welcome on the page. That's right. right. In that space, that creative space, if that's the page. Yeah, that's right. And that's radical activity. You know, the thing that complicates that, if we do like the political conversation, the problem with every conversation about art is that it's in a system of capitalism. So you're trying to always convert the value of art to something like the marketplace or some kind of other value that I just don't think it has. I don't think that it's inherently about that kind of value. So what I'm really trying to do with people in my work and in the conversations, it's like, but it ain't really about can you get rich off of this shit? It ain't really about will somebody buy it and make you me? I'm like, I make my living as a teacher, man. I would never want to make a living as a poet Mm -hmm. because my poems ain't about that kind of money. I would never want my poems to be converted. You know, even my paintings. How about this? You know, I've been painting forever, but I give everything away. You know, I think I got fifty dollars one time for a painting. This is like a Terrence Hayes, you know, folklore story, but it's true. (laughs) In my senior year. Um, I was cleaning out my art bin. So everybody knew I did murals on the school. I did t-shirts for people. I got arrested one time and I painted the judge. So when I say everybody thought I was going to be a painter, you know, they really did. So anyway, the folklore is, you know, so when I was throwing everything out on the, my senior day, you know, everybody came, my coaches came. I, it was just like a line of people. It was like 10, 15 people standing around getting my art out of the trash can. This was the stuff that I was just like, I can't take it home. And so that moment always lives with me as like, you know, what people's expectations were for me as a visual artist. But again, I just sort of felt like the money that went into being an artist and my understanding of what it took to be an artist, which is like I was going to have to be selling stuff instead of like giving it away. Or even letting people just take what they want for nothing. And for my whole life, I've had that relationship with art. I do it for gifts. I do it during the holidays. My cousin passed away. I did a painting of her and that keeps me going and it makes the art serve a function. Remember talking about this function thing? It does. I know it's gone somewhere, but I would never want money for it. And I feel the same way about my poems. You know, I write poems for people's birthdays or whatever, send them to them. But I make my living as a teacher. You know, what, what, what did they say uh, in Dada? We're making things irrational to undercut reason. But even that's being sold. <laughs> mm-hmm. Right. But they right. were reacting to the First World War. They were reacting to a, a reason, quote unquote, reason based political system that ended up with millions of people dead. Mm-hmm. They really had to consider how their participation in capitalism, to your point, led to this kind of destruction. But even that art will be sold eventually because it's creating historical meaning. And that's what sells. Right. Having said that there's other value systems, even though we are often in the water of a certain kind of value system where people are asking us to, well, value our art, to decide who's a better poet, who gets what prize and who doesn't. That's the reality. So I'm saying to people after first saying, you know, the people that win those prizes are not really playing that game. Again, it's game theory. I literally said that today, too. Like this just comes from me being an athlete that I think about these things because the parallels are the same about competition you know, competitiveness in the marketplace. Those principles are sports principles. Even though they're unrelated to art, I still know what they are, right? And so thinking about how you're strategizing around those kinds of moments is how I spend a lot of my time as a person who's sort of not inherently of this place, you know? And I don't even really go into that too much. Right. You know, I said to Claudia Rankin, who is also on this podcast, that my parents are segregated baby boomers. And what does that mean? That means you need to get up and be useful. 
There's no sleeping late. There's nothing, right? Because they're dealing with histories of trauma, but they're not telling me what the trauma is, but they're definitely living out life in ways that you, you know it's coming from a place. Oh, yeah. Right? And, and so I'm thinking about being raised by them and having a certain kind of ethic, work ethic mm. and, and what have you, and also political ethic. But that making does not necessarily mean that I will live that way my whole life. So what does it mean to sort of bloom into who you are, right? Because I'm also a kid raised in New York. They're from Alabama. I'm from New York. So they passed me something. And it's like language. You pass me something, but it will live similarly and differently through me. And so I don't listen to rappers under 20 because how someone heard the Sugar Hill Gang and then how someone heard Rakim and then how, you know, Nas heard Rakim, how I heard Nas, but then how the next generation will live out that continuum is something that's, that's really interesting. And so when you're telling your student, live with all of your tools out there, I don't even understand half of your tools, but they're mm-hmm. yours. Let me do that around trauma to go back to mm-hmm. the things you said about segregated baby boomers, like the phenomena of the black baby boomer has a key element in it of trauma that I learned this through Yusuf, the Pulitzer Prize winning poet, Yusuf Komenyaka. I thought about this in my thinking about Yusuf. And again, talking about the art opening worlds up, I now think it about my parents and, and Patricia and everybody else, which is the Emmett Till thing. Mm-hmm. So there is a kind of black existence that we maybe no longer have access to. Like maybe my grandmama, who's 85, can remember what that world was like before Emmett Till was killed or before she encountered the notion that like a black child could be killed. Mm. So we knew it was happening, but I'm talking about the scale and visibility of the Till moment, right? So we know it's happening as a kind of folklore and as a kind of like reality, but still as a very specific reality. It's sort of like how often black men get stopped by cops. So not everybody Mm -hmm. gets stopped. It's enough for you to know it's happening. You see the parallel I'm making here about the phenomena of lynching. Certainly if you're up north, this is still the Emmett Till thing too. It still is folklore. We know it's happening. But I'm Mm -hmm. marking a reality that one lives before it's public at official, right? So there's my grandmother's generation. But what I thought about around that was like, Yusuf is the same age as the boy that James Baldwin is writing Born in 47 in the, you know, letters to, it's the thing that, um, Ta-Nehisi is based on his piece on mm-hmm. letters to his nephew. I can't remember what that piece is called, but the boy who's 15 is born in the same year as Yusuf. Mm-hmm. So now we're talking about the black mm-hmm. baby boomer to remember to say that like there's a generation of black people who grew up always with the most public thing they first remember at 10, at five. So you see the connections I'm making. And I, I think yep. about that in terms of everything. I would say for my son, I think about like having been born in the wake of September 11th and now a generation with the pandemic, that's 20 years. So I don't know what that name is going to be, but it's going to be a name and it's going to be in the work of everything that everybody does. What's in our work? I don't know. Like we got around a war. I'm thinking about the generation Xers. We do have September 11th, but I'm still thinking about like the foundational things. It's like the space shuttle challenger, you know, we we could talk about it, but I'm saying everybody in their generation Remember what I said? We could think about it as trauma, but it ain't only that. The zeitgeist is shaped by kind of collective experiences, and I'm interested in how that gets into the work or doesn't get into the work. I think Yusuf's work is totally traumatized all the time by Mm -hmm. Emmett Till in a different way than, say, like Reginald Shepard or people younger or Tim Siebel's, a different kind of relationship to race. Tim Mm -hmm. is the first generation of like being able to go to integrated high school. You know, he didn't start out that way, but by high school in the 70s, they were integrated different kind of poet. 
Mm-hmm. You follow what I'm saying? Like those adjacencies yep. of like cultural phenomena and what that does for one's work is what I'm often yeah. asking the students. Like it's there, whether you know it or not. And that's sort of like, if you ain't tracking it, nobody's going to be tracking it. Like how you mm-hmm. felt in the sixth grade when it's based general term, what was your teacher wearing? And those kinds of questions, what did the next day feel like are, if you don't put that down, it's not going to be put down. So yeah. I'm just trying to make that case for people in terms of like living in the the world that you are in and trying to get a sense of that because it's only your world. If you don't, it's just gone. It's interesting. That essay by James Baldwin, second person, right? Tatiana mm-hmm. Coates, second person. Right. And, and thinking about the use of second person as a way to be in it and not in it. In it, but mm-hmm. also a witness as narrator. You're in it, but you're also uh, a wisdom giver of experience. Right. You know, the, the way that you can sort of sit in language that is not totally the I, just the I-ness. And I'm thinking about someone like Carrie James Marshall. Mm-hmm. And the ways in which his work translates this idea of blackness that is like ivory black. You have Mars black. And sometimes Mm -hmm. it takes all the colors to make that black. But also there is this sort of uh, deepness to it that does invoke the trauma of of blackness because it's so deeply black. Mm -hmm. And the the metaphor for what it means to have a sort of irrational black skin, if that makes Mm -hmm. any sense. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, it's built up of everything in and of itself. And what that means as, you know, a 15-year-old looking at that, a 10-year-old or a 60-year-old, and they may go through the language of the transitions. My father was born colored. Before him, there were Negroes. They came into Afro-American, and that was a fight. And then African-American. Mm-hmm. And so there, there are ways in which those things are, in their own way, you, right? Because mm-hmm. they're not permanent. They're always in flux. They're always in transition. And how we understand these terms that categorize our lives connects to the sort of the challenger as moments, right? That also mm-hmm. help categorize our lives. I had this really interesting experience, if you can indulge me for a moment here. Mm-hmm. And so I was in the Ebony Jet, the Johnson Publishing Archive. And I was looking through a box labeled Emmett Till. Mm-hmm. And I pulled from that box things that I didn't know re-traumatized me. I, got, I, I went back to my hotel. I was sick. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I was sick. And so there's a way in which this kind of thing reoccurs. Mm-hmm. But how I live that trauma is somewhat different, but there are things that reoccur. Right. Mm-hmm. And so looking at the blackness of a Carrie James Marshall, I'm, I'm brought to the ways he, he understands and through his paintings that we are objects. You understand what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. I'm so happy to talk a little bit about art. I love Carrie James Marshall's work. I followed it for a mm-hmm. long time. I try to stay in my own way abreast mm-hmm. of what's going on in art. But what's so fun is, you know, to have these conversations with myself. I'm not friends with a lot of painters. But to say to you about Kerry James Marshall that I've always thought of him as a writer. So those paintings are amazing. The notions of color, obviously, uh, he likes text too. But I do, I think of the paintings are like poems. You know, there's such like visual narrative phenomena. So the skin of the color is just another kind of part of the poem that I, I'm just constantly reading with great joy. And it is probably because I've never taught it or had to ever give a lecture on it. So there's something mm-hmm. about the language of that kind of visual line that is connected to illustrations and books. So that's undergirded, but I've never read it anywhere that anybody talked about like the kind of writerly impulse that drives how one mm-hmm. understands his work. You know, maybe I think that a little bit about Bob Thompson, but I don't think it about a lot of people. I don't think about none of the abstract expressionists. You know, I don't think it's just about like 
representational art either. I think it has to do with that language. I had to do something with this relationship to blackness too, that, it, that you show up already in front of those paintings with some story already happening always. And I think that he is writing, you know, he's using yeah. paint and a paintbrush and a canvas, but totally that brother's a writer. Yeah. You know, the genealogy for that could go back to Langston Hughes, right? What, 1926, the Negro artists in the racial mountain. Right. You know, if they like it, great. If they don't like it, so what? Paraphrasing here. Words of a person under 30. I think he was like, was he 26 when he wrote that? You know, young person. That's like, you know, Keith's talking about negative capability at 24. So they can be right about some things. We're talking about like manifestos that whole generations have built things on. That's true for negative capability and the Negro and the racial. About mm -hmm. like, you know, old people saying that this was right. So I'm always like, these young people can get okay. stuff right. Let's, they can be wise mm -hmm. too. It's a vote of confidence when we think about how young you was to have gotten on that. Mm hmm. But there's something in it. You know, I'm, I'm going to go back to, to something else you said. You said anything can be said if you say it right. Whatever you're going for is right. But sometimes it can be said beautifully. Sometimes it can be said in a very raw way. Sometimes it can be said metaphorically. Right. Again, remember the line break, though, right? Because you made it. Because, you know, mm -hmm. the debate is around rightness. The judgment, the evaluation is around rightness. And that's when we get into kind of marketplace competition, moral competition, I always have to add that what we're really trying to figure out is like, what's right for you? Mm -hmm. Not what's right for Jesus. Not what's right for black people. What's right for you as a human being mm -hmm. with all the value in that. That's what we're really chasing. So I, it always has to be said. But yeah, and I think, you know, that's the full sentence. But it leads out of that notion of first believing that your mark is valid if you can get your actual mark down mm -hmm. and not the mark somebody else has told you is valid. Well, you know, that, that Baraka, that Amiri Baraka generation, the we, we shall, mm -hmm. we shall, you know, every stanza is a, a parade of people. We real cool. We real cool, right? To say that you are empowering individuals who will speak their truth. I mean, that in and of itself is a radical notion because you're saying the individual witness has the power of a parade of, of people, right? That the individual witness can't speak his, her, or their truth, and that in and of itself is radical activity. I'm also saying, I mean, I'm poking a little bit here. Like, I'm also saying the words that we use, like, has the power. I would be like, as a poet, well, what is power? Mm -hmm. You know, that's why I keep saying the thing, as I often say to my students about, like, value systems. It's like we're in this water. This is uh, David Foster Wallace. Do you know this? It is water. Oh, this yeah, yeah, keynote address. Mm -hmm. Totally what that is. Like, the older fish going by the two young fish. Like, the water's cool today. Like, what the fuck is water? I feel like that old fish all the time with people saying like, you know, we in a certain kind of water, but it ain't the only substance that surrounds us or mm. may surround us. And so all of those questions still go back to like, even the notion of power for an individual is not the same notion of power for a people, even though mm -hmm. we use those as interchangeable terms, you know? Yeah. It's that it's not just outside of you, right? So even though you may write poems, poems don't live necessarily as a thing in and of themselves, but they are tools for living if you engage them properly, right? Right. Terrence, thank you so much for talking with me. Really appreciate it. It's been great to be here. It's always good to talk to you, Laurent. This episode was produced by Zoe Goldman with audio production by Gideon Brower and mixing by Mike Dodge Weiskopf. Our theme music comes from The Dharma at Big Sur, composed by John Adams for the opening of the Walt Disney Concert Hall in Los Angeles in 2003 and is licensed with permission from Hinden Music. 
For photos, transcripts, and other resources, visit getty.edu slash podcasts. And if you have a question, write to us at podcasts at getty.edu. Thanks for listening.